Hello and welcome to Lifetimes of Learning, a production of the Buddhist Discussion Centre, Australia. In this podcast series, we will be discussing the teachings and principles of Buddha Dharma, which are just as relevant today as they were 2,600 years ago. So wherever you are, whether on your meditation cushion or on your way to work, we invite you to bring your mind inside and listen to the teachings of the Buddha. start looking at the similarities of the different teaching, not the differences. Mm-hmm. Because there's there are differences, but when you start talking about them, then it gets to be heated discussions, and that's not the Buddhist way. I spent 12 years in Asia, in Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Burma, Indonesia, Singapore, uh, pretty much all over. I have done 12 three-month retreats. I did an eight-month retreat. I did a two-year retreat. So I am very familiar with meditation in general. When I was in Asia, I was looking for one to see if I could find an arahat. I didn't care what tradition he was, and I never did. And two, I kept on asking questions that seemed like everybody should know the answer to, and all I got was generalized answers. One of the questions I asked was, what is craving? How do you recognize craving when it arises? How do you let craving go? And it was just general, well, it's desire, and let go of desire. And that didn't seem, it didn't sit well with me. I'm really into definitions. I am into trying to be as specific as possible. And I spent almost 20 years doing the Mahasi-style meditation. (coughs) 
and I went as far as I could with that without really being satisfied with the end results. I came back to Indonesia, or uh, I came back to Malaysia, and I was asked to uh, spend time with K. Sri Damananda, who is a very famous Thai uh, Sri Lankan monk. And when he asked me to come and stay at his center, he said, I'm getting old. I want you to come, and every other Friday night, I want you to give a Dhamma talk. And he, he had a lot of people coming to those Dhamma talks. Every, uh, every Friday night, there was between three and 500 people that showed up at the, at the center for the talks. And he just kind of threw me in and said, uh, just talk for an hour and a half or two hours, that's good. And that was it. So it was a real interesting time. But while I was there, I had been following commentarial practice, which is what Vipassana is, the way it's being taught right now. And as I said, I wasn't real satisfied with the end result of that. I found out that when you do certain kinds of meditation, there's no real personality development. There's no getting happier. There's developing a critical mind and developing a harsh mind. And I didn't like that in myself when I started seeing that, so I started looking for something else. It so happens that there was a monk from Sri Lanka that came to visit Ketri Damananda, and I was teaching meditation at the time. I was teaching loving-kindness meditation. And he, he came to me, his name was Venerable Punaji. I don't know if you know him or not. And he came to me and he said, tell me how you teach meditation. So I started telling him how I was teaching, and he stopped me and he said, you're teaching the meditation correctly, but you're using the language of the commentary. Why don't you let go of that language and develop using the sutta language? This was a pretty revolutionary thing to me because I had spent 20 years of studying the commentary and when I went to the suttas I didn't understand them because it didn't agree with what the commentary said. <coughs> so when he said let the commentary go and just go to the sutta, then all of a sudden I started understanding what the suttas were saying. And of course the first uh, Sutta that I went to was the Satipatthana Sutta because everybody goes to the Satipatthana Sutta. 
And I found out that he gave the instructions in doing the mindfulness of breathing, but he didn't include all of the instructions in the mindfulness of breathing. And the vipassana that I was being taught was to focus on the breath and see the, the start of the in-breath and the middle of the in-breath and the end of the out-breath and the blank and then that going backwards and just focus on the breath. Now when I went to the instructions it said something completely different. One, it never says focus just on the breath. It says you understand when you take a long breath or you understand when you take a short breath. It doesn't say to focus on any particular place in your body. Then it says you train thus. Now this is the actual experience of training your mind with the meditation. And on the in-breath you experience the entire body. On the out-breath you experience the entire body. And that's kind of the vipassana, the way it's being taught. It's not quite the same. But the next step is completely let go of. And this is the most important part of the instructions in doing the meditation. It says, on the in-breath you tranquilize your bodily formation. On the out-breath you tranquilize your bodily formation. It doesn't mean you become tranquil when you're doing the breathing meditation. It says to relax on the in-breath and relax on the out-breath. And that changes the entire meditation. One, you don't get so deeply focused just on one point. This opens up your awareness more. Now what I, what I discovered is that there is tension and tightness in your head, in your mind, every time you have a thought, every time a feeling arises, every time a sensation occurs. There's tension and tightness. And relaxing the, the uh, bodily formation is to relax the tightness in your head. When you relax the tightness in your head, all of a sudden your mind becomes very clear. And you don't have distracting thoughts. Your mind is very bright, your mind is very pure. Now what I've discovered is that craving, that is that tightness in your head. Now, I did 20 years of practice by having a headache almost all the time. Having that tension and tightness in my head. And I went to the, a lot of the very famous teachers 
and I complained about it, and they said, well, just never mind, it's nothing, just let it go, it'll disappear on its own. But when I started doing this practice of relaxing on the in-breath and relaxing on the out-breath, I, I decided to try relaxing that tightness that was in my head. And as soon as I did that, I noticed that my mind was very clear, very alert, but there was no distraction in my mind. Now, I was considered a very, very advanced meditator in the Mahasi system. But when I finally figured out about this tightness in the head, I did a sitting that it lasted about two and a half hours, and my mind went so much deeper than it ever had before. And the clarity of my mind was just remarkable. And I could start recognizing when hindrances first started to come up and I would relax and let them be and come back to me uh, to the breath and relax on the in-breath and relax on the out-breath. And that's something that is definitely in the suttas. I have, I have a copy if you want me to read it, I can read it for you, but that's what it says. And what I discovered was you relax on the in-breath, you relax on the out-breath, you don't focus only on the breath, you use the breath as the reminder to relax the tension and tightness. I started adding this to teaching loving-kindness meditation, which I'll explain that in just a minute. And I started seeing people zoom through the meditation and their progress. It was really amazing. Now, I've been taught that it's going to take many years to become a sotapanna or, or whatever, to be, to be be awakened. I don't use the word enlightened because that's really a misunderstood word. When you practice the Buddha's teaching, you become awake. It's like being asleep and then all of a sudden you wake up and you go, oh, this is what I've been doing and I do this and it causes me pain, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Now, when I came back after doing a two-year retreat in Burma and being very dissatisfied with the practice, I was asked to teach straight vipassana by a lot of people in Malaysia. They all knew that I'd, I'd gone and done it, but I couldn't teach it with an open mind, because I knew it didn't work. 
I mean, I, I went through all of the things, I went through all of the insight knowledges, I understand them very deeply, I understand them, but I didn't feel like there, I felt like there was something I was missing. So, when I was asked to teach meditation, what I started doing was, at first I started by trying to teach the mindfulness of breathing, the way it says in the suttas, but people would forget and they'd go back to the old way of doing it. <coughs> they didn't really progress very well. So I decided, well, if I'm going to teach meditation to people and help people to be more happy, what I'm going to do is change the meditation altogether. So I started teaching loving-kindness meditation, not according to this, the commentaries, which says you have to make four wishes, and it turns out to be a mental kind of experience. I started reading the suttas and finding out that it's talking about softening your heart. And this is a feeling meditation, not a mental meditation. So, a lot of people, they have this idea that jhana is not a good thing. Jhana practice, they say, especially the Burmese, they say, well, jhana practice is so you can develop psychic abilities, but you can never attain nibbana by going through the jhanas. But that doesn't agree with what it says in the suttas. Now, Vipassana, the way it's being taught right now, is mentioned eight times in all of the, the four books of the suttas. Loving-kindness is mentioned over a hundred. Jhana practice is mentioned many, many thousands of times. So what do you think the Buddha taught most? He taught jhana practice. But as I, as I kept going, I started understanding there's more than one kind of jhana. The kind of jhana that almost everybody that is teaching right now is a one-pointed jhana where you focus just on one thing and you can go very deep, you can get into a state of bliss, and it's very nice, but when you come out of that state, there's no change in your personality. There's no softening of your personality. There's no fun. Okay? <clears throat> so when I started teaching loving-kindness, seeing that there is a different kind of jhana where instead of you're just focusing on one thing, it's opening up your awareness so that you can carry your loving-kindness with you into your daily activities. 
and there is personality development because you're letting go of the tension and tightness in your head, in your mind. I developed a thing that is called, well actually I didn't come up with it, one of my students came up with it, it's called, we call it the six R's. Okay, you recognize when your mind is distracted. You release the distraction by not keeping your attention on whatever it is that pulled your attention don't make a big deal out of anything that comes up in mind. You relax that tightness caused by that distraction. Now here is where the fun begins. I teach smiling meditation. Why do I teach smiling meditation? The more you smile, the better your mindfulness becomes. The lighter your mind becomes. So you smile and you bring that smiling mind that doesn't have any craving in it because you let go of the craving before. And stay with your object of meditation, which is loving-kindness. Now in the, one of the suttas it talks about the advantages of practicing loving-kindness meditation. <coughs> and one of the advantages of practicing loving-kindness meditation is your progress is much faster with loving-kindness than it is with any other kind of practice that the Buddha taught. Now when I give a retreat, I only have you come for 10 days. Because you don't need any more than that. Okay, when, when I go to different countries like Indonesia, I give a retreat for 40 or 50 people. Half of the people become Sotapanna in 10 days. Your progress is really fast. There is a change of perspective that happens when, this, when you start doing this. You really start to understand more and more how this process works. When you practice one-pointed concentration, this is what happens. Mind is on your object of meditation. It doesn't matter whether it's breath or whatever other meditation you're doing. And it gets distracted. Now most of the instructions go like this. Let go of the distraction and immediately come back to your object of meditation. 
Okay, what are you doing when you do that? You're bringing back the craving because you haven't recognized it or let it go. Craving is the I like it, I don't like it mind. Okay, you have five aggregates, right? There's five things that make up the psychophysical process. You have a physical body. You have feeling. Feeling is not emotion. Feeling is pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. Right after feeling, there is perception. Perception is the part of the mind that names the feeling. Okay? Then you have thoughts, then you have consciousness. When a feeling arises, it's either pleasant or unpleasant, basically. If it's pleasant, I like it. If it's painful, I don't like it. That is craving. I like it or I don't like it mind. What happens with a lot of people when they get into their meditation is they will have hindrances arise and they'll get involved in trying to think the feeling away. Feelings are one thing and thoughts are something else. So what can we do? We have to be able to recognize that our mind is not on our object of meditation and release that distraction. Don't keep your attention on that, that thought or that feeling, whatever it happens to be. Let it be there by itself. Then relax the tightness in your head. Then smile. Come back to your object of meditation. Stay with your object of meditation as long as you can. Now, when your mind is on your object of meditation and it gets distracted, let it be and relax. When you do that, you're purifying your mind. Why? Because you don't have craving anymore. You relax and let it go. Then you bring the pure mind back to your object of meditation, and that's why you have faster progress when you're practicing this way. When people come and they start to do a retreat with me, I insist that they smile. I want you to smile all the time. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you're eating a meal. I don't care if you're going to the toilet. Smile. Why do I say that? Because that improves your mindfulness. This is a word that is really confusing because there's so many people that have so many definitions. I'm going to give you the definition that works 100% of the time. 
Mindfulness is remembering to observe. Remembering to observe how mind's attention moves from one thing to another. It's the observation of watching this process. So when you smile more, and you smile all the time, you can see when that light mind starts to get heavy, and you'll notice it more quickly, and you'll let go of it and relax and smile and come back. It proves your personality. You start letting go of emotional upsets and pain that you cause yourself. So this extra step of relaxing attention and tightness, as soon as you relax attention and tightness in your, in your head, you're letting go of the tension and tightness in your mind at the same time. Mind and body are connected. It is truly amazing to watch how fast people really progress. And I have probably three to four thousand students. And 90, 99% of them get into jhana the first few days of a retreat. If they don't get into jhana, they're not following the directions. They're not smiling. See, when I, when I first start to teach, first day of the retreat, I tell everybody, there's three things I want you to do. One, I want you to smile all the time. I want you to laugh, especially when you get caught in some kind of nonsense thing that your mind is, is attached to. And the last one is, I want you to have fun. Now, have you ever run across any meditation teacher that says that to you? Oh, this is supposed to be serious. And you go into a meditation retreat and everybody is... That doesn't happen in my retreats. My retreats, they're smiling. They're happy. And when they get done with the retreat, even six months later, they'll write emails to me and tell me how much better their life is because they learned this. It's real important that you understand there are some basic principles that are being either ignored and forgotten about that the Buddha gave us that are really, really important.
important. I don't care whether you practice Mahayana, Vajrayana, or Theravada. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you follow the instruction that the Buddha has given us. And that relaxed step is major. Now, I've done a lot of one-pointed kinds of concentration with, with the Mahasi method. I had such intense pain in my head that it was like somebody had a red-hot needle that was about that long and just stuck it in the middle of my head. I had tears coming down. I wasn't crying because of the pain. It just made my, my tears water, my, my eyes water. And... I could honestly say that was suffering. Now, a lot of people, when they start talking about the Four Noble Truths, really don't understand the Four Noble Truths in its depth. The first noble truth, a lot of teachers these days, they, they say, all life is suffering. Well, that's not the first noble truth. The first noble truth is there is suffering in life. It doesn't mean that every little act you do is part of suffering. But you don't have to be a genius to know that there's times when it's hard and there's times when it's not. There is suffering. The second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering, and that cause is craving. Why isn't that amazing? Craving. What is craving? Craving is the I like it, I don't like it mind. How do you let go of craving? Relax the tightness in your head. See right after that. You don't have thoughts. You don't have random stuff just running through your mind. Your mind is very clear. Your mind is very alert. And you bring that mind that smiles with it back to your object of meditation. It turns out to be fun. And you're going to go deep in the meditation. Probably 75% or more of my students get at least to the fourth jhana. Now, this is not the same kind of jhana that you practice with one-pointed concentration. This is called an aware jhana where you're very much more aware of things around you. Have you ever done a retreat where if somebody sneezed or somebody made a, a loud noise, you went, God, they're making too much noise. I hate that. Why? Why does that happen? Your mindfulness is out of balance with your concentration. When you practice with the relaxed step, it's 
always in balance. Uh, I, I've had meditation tell, teachers tell me that sound is a thorn in the sight of a meditator. But it's just a sound. How angry do get people people get when they're they have a sound and it blinks them? That's aversion. That's dislike. That's unwholesome. It's just a sound. I had people that I had a clock in the meditation room and they go up and they get it off the wall and they pull the batteries off because it ticked too loud. It's only a sound. What difference does it make? If you make a big deal out of a sound, then you're going to have aversion to the sound. But if it's not a big deal, it's only a sound, so why do I want to put my attention on that? And you do that with everything. You start developing equanimity, a balanced mind that's very much aware you'll hear sound, but it doesn't make your mind shake and go to it. If it does, that means you're making a big deal out of it and you are causing yourself suffering. Uh, the, one of the first suttas, when I, when I give a retreat, every night I read a sutta. So you understand that it's not my teaching, it's from the Buddha. And one of the first uh, things that I teach is sutta number 128, and it talks about hindrances and what you need to do with hindrances and how to handle them. Almost everybody that practices meditation wind up fighting with a hindrance. I don't like it. My mind takes off and it'll take off for a few minutes thinking about this, thinking about that. It's okay that that happens. As soon as you recognize that your mind is distracted, don't continue thinking it. Let it be by itself. Don't keep your attention on it. Relax a tightness. Smile. Come back. Hindrances are actually your teachers. They're showing you where you have an attachment. Why do hindrances arise? Because in the past, you have broken one of the precepts. There's only five precepts you need to keep, right? Don't kill or harm living beings on purpose. Don't steal anything. Don't have wrong sexual activity. Don't lie. Don't curse. Don't divide people. Don't gossip. Don't take drugs or alcohol. 
pretty easy. But speech is a hard one. You're Sri Lankan, and this is something that is a posture that closes your heart. When I was in Sri Lanka, everybody was like this. And they actually resented when I told them, don't do that. You're closing your heart. This is a thinking posture, not a listening posture. So, hindrances when you say something that's not true, or you break one of the hindrances, you curse or whatever. I had a student that he loved to curse. I mean, he really got into it. For 30 years, I told him he had to stop doing that. He would come and do a retreat. The last two days of the retreat, his mind would finally settle down, and he would get some progress. And he would see all these other students making progress really fast. And he kept on saying, why is this happening? I said, you have to stop cursing. You have to let go of that mind that is filled with anger and dislike. Because that's what cursing, where it comes from. Finally, like a revelation, he came to me one day and he said, well, I, I stopped cursing them. And his meditation took off. Taking the precepts, keeping the precepts, is the foundation of the Buddha's teaching. And it's not, uh, let's do it on the day we come to the temple. This is an all-the-time practice. If you want to stop having distractions while you're sitting, the longer you can go without breaking a precept, the more clear your, your practice is going to become. I have a friend that's been teaching, he's a very famous meditation teacher, been teaching meditation for over 50 years and he has been fighting the hindrances for 50 years. He's been going along and breaking the precepts without even thinking about it. He had a lot of fear and you could hear it in his voice when he was talking with groups of people. What's wrong with that practice? There's something that he's doing wrong. Because when you keep your precepts, your mind becomes more and more pure all the time. And you start recognizing what you're going to do before you do it. You make a choice. I'm going to say this. I know it's a lie. As soon as you tell a little white lie, or a big lie, whatever it happens to be, you feel guilty, and you take it personally. 
I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. That's a problem. That will cause your meditation to be super active. And you'll get into the habit of, well, when I'm doing the retreat, I'm going to take the precepts every day. I'm going to follow those every day. When I get off retreat, then I can go back to being the way I was. Now, I wrote a book. It's called Life is Meditation. Meditation is life. There is no difference between sitting and living your daily life when you're keeping your precepts. you'll start to notice more and more how you cause your own pain by fighting with the hindrances when they come up. What you do with what arises in the present moment dictates what happens in the future. If you fight with the present moment, you try to stop it, you try to push it around and suppress it, you can look forward to that hindrance coming up over and over and over again until you learn not to do it. You're causing yourself a lot of suffering. But if the hindrance comes up and you allow it to be there without fighting it. Let it be there by itself. Don't make a big deal out of it. Relax, smile, come back to your object of meditation. You are purifying your mind. And that comes back to you as more and more happiness arising more and more stillness in your city. And it's natural. Everything the Buddha taught was a natural process. These jhanas, they happen by themselves. When the conditions are right, you'll go from one jhana to the next jhana to the next jhana. When I give a retreat, I don't tell you what jhana you're in because it doesn't matter. It's the experience you have while you're in the jhana. That's how I can tell where you're at. I have a lot of success and a lot of people being very happy because they learn how to smile and they'll come to me like there's some kind of revelation. You know, when I smile, I'm really happy. Well, yeah. Why do you think I keep telling you you need to smile? But it's, it's like they come and they go, well, I didn't believe you. Now I see it. That's the brilliance of the Buddhist teaching. Because you will see your own progress. And it can happen fast. And it really works. I 
I've spent more time in Indonesia than I have any other country teaching. The Indonesians are starting to change their society. Why? When you practice loving kindness, you affect the world around you. It's not a maybe. It really does work. You walk down the street smiling. You look at other people. What's going to happen? They're going to see you smiling and they'll smile back. Well, you're affecting the world around you in a positive way then, aren't you? Go into a grocery store where there's little kids that, I want this, I want that, wah, 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 wah. Stand beside them and smile. See what happens. They'll stop and they'll look at you like, what are you doing? <laughs> and they'll quiet down. And the mother, well, she feels a lot of relief. So you're affecting a few people around. In India, there's this guy that he teaches about smiling. He has a one-week retreat, and he charges $1,200 for a week. I don't charge anything, and I have a lot of people that smile. How do you know when you're progressing in your meditation? Your sense of humor changes. You don't laugh. You start laughing with things. You start seeing a bird do some kind of crazy little thing, and you just start laughing. Wow, that was great. The Buddha said we are the happy ones. He didn't say everything in life is suffering. The more smile, the more uplifted your mind becomes, the more alert your awareness becomes. And again, I don't care about the philosophies of Mahayana, Theravada. I don't care about that. Actually, I've started up my own sect. It's called Suttavada. Because I read the suttas every day. And when you hear the suttas, it's not coming from me. It's the Buddha's teaching. It helps you a lot. So I highly suggest it. But you have to have somebody around to explain it to you at first. After you get to a certain place in, in your meditation, don't need anybody else around. You'll get it on your own. See, the whole thing with Buddhism is teaching you how to do a natural process that helps expand the way you see the world around you. And right now, a lot more people with a happier disposition. There's an awful lot of people that are not so nice. And they're trying to 
cause more and more dissatisfaction. I feel sorry for those people because they're miserable. And they're trying to make everybody else miserable. Well, you can forgive them and smile and be happy. The more you can practice your smiling, Or it changes your perspective. The more balance you start to get in your mind. This is equanimity. So you're not going to have the emotional upsets when you start to get to a certain place in the meditation. When you add that relaxed step in the meditation, Changes the whole the whole meditation so that you have more balance, you have more happiness arising. You don't have emotional angers and fears and anxieties. You're going to notice these things, and you're going to be able to six R and relax and continue on without being upset. Now, it was a few years ago, I, I have uh, about 100 acres of land in, in Missouri, which is in the middle of the country, and that's where they have a lot of tornadoes, high winds. Tornado hit our place. And I wasn't, I wasn't there when it happened, I was in town. And there was a lot of excitement. Oh, my, I, this building has fallen over, and this, and, and, oh, this is really terrible. And because I have equanimity and balance, I'm, I'm saying, well, there's no sense in getting upset by this. Why don't we just wait and see what happens? See what it is that we have to do to fix it, to make it right again. And it, it blew down a lot of our trees, which were old trees, and I really liked them. Now we don't have those trees anymore. We have to plant new ones. But it, put, it picked up my uh, cabin, and I moved it about six inches, and then it set it down again. So it wasn't on the, on the foundation bricks that we had. Had to pick it up and put it back the way it was. But I went inside my cabin thinking that everything is going to be evolved, all problems. And the only thing that happened was one of the books, bookshelves fell over. Okay. I had a little table like this that had crystals on the table. They didn't fall off. Just over a little bit. It was a problem. We had we had some cabins that we had to redo a little bit, but it wasn't that big a deal. Now I could have fallen to pieces and projected all kinds of real big problems. 
and it was somewhat of a big problem. We had a swimming pool that was above the ground, and a building got pushed into the swimming pool. Okay, so we had to straighten that out, and we lost the swimming pool. Okay. Not much of a big deal. But acceptance. There wasn't fighting with reality. There wasn't dislike and hatred in my mind. There was acceptance. Okay, this tree got blown over. Now we have to cut up the tree and we have to move it and get it out of the way so we can drive in and out. Okay, which is something else that you got to do. Now I could have I could have suffered a lot. But it was just more stuff that needed to be done, and we got arranged, and we started doing it. That's all. Yeah, we lost a lot of big trees, so now we have flower gardens instead of trees. Okay, so now it's different. Life is going to have some ups and downs. And the more you have balance in your mind, the more you send loving kindness out to other beings that are suffering, the more you radiate this happy feeling and smiling, the more you affect everybody around you in a positive way. I used to go to after the two-year retreat, when I got into Malaysia with Sri Sri Dhammananda, people started asking me to go to the hospital and visit people who were sick. And just about every day I was going to the hospital. Now, a lot of these people, they were really sick. Before I would go visit them, when I was walking down the hallway, before I went in to see them, I started telling myself, their pain is theirs. I can't take their pain away. But I can love them. And as soon as I walked in, if they were moaning and groaning and really in a lot of pain, I didn't try to interfere with that. I just sat down and started loving them. And the feeling of the love started changing, and all of a sudden their minds started getting more uplifted, and they weren't crying so much. And after a few minutes, they actually started laughing. Why? Because I practice true compassion. Compassion is allowing people to have their own suffering. Don't interfere with it. Don't try to talk them out of their suffering. 
to love them without any condition. Just love them because they're there. You see all kinds of miracles happen when you do that. And it helps to practice smiling all the time so that when you get in a situation that's stressful, then you start putting loving kindness into the situation, it changes the situation, and things get done more orderly. And you can see it happen. I mean, it's amazing. See somebody along the side of the road that just were in an accident. Stop. People are running around doing this and that, and they're all scattered, and they're yelling at each other. Sending loving kindness to them, and all of a sudden they become organized, and their mind isn't so scattered anymore. That's how you can help other people to be happy. The more you practice loving kindness, the more you practice true compassion, the more uplifted you become. Everybody else's mind starts to get up to your level. It's really kind of fun to watch it happen. See people that are arguing. Stand back. Don't get involved in their argument. They're, they're just emotional nonsense stuff. Start radiating loving kindness to them. Before long, they start talking. They stop talking at the same time. Then they start discussing what the real problem is, because it's not the emotional thing that they were talking about. And then before long, they start laughing together, and then they go, they go their separate way. I've seen this happen I don't know how many times. I'm not dumb enough to get in the middle of an argument, but I do know to solve the problem because everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants to be loved. And they don't like the highly emotional states they get in. And that's aversion, isn't it? So the more you can smile, the more you can have fun, the more you affect the world around you in a positive I don't know how long I'm supposed to be talking. It's not more than that. Uh-oh, that's dangerous. Would you like to all ask questions? Any more questions? Anything you heard? Venerable, thank you for teaching. I'm feeling very blessed. I have a question regarding loving kindness. Um, I work as a um, as a chef um, in a very busy cafe, and generally in the morning when I start my shift, I'm quite uh, quite um, say, quite bright, quite you know, smiling. But I find that after the four or five hours of working a busy shift, my mind tends to get quite narrow and rigid, and hate begins to arise. And I don't want to always have like five minutes to have a break and regain my mindfulness. Is there anything I can do 
to to help my, myself Absolutely. come back to to loving kindness in the moment. Smile. <laughs> the thing is, we try to make a big deal out of having concentration, and there's different kinds of concentration. Most people think of concentration as just this one point of just being up with what you're doing while you're doing But when you were in school and you were you had a class that you liked, what kind of grade did you get in there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Why? Because it was fun. When you see that you're starting to get Serious, laugh. Okay, that's it's amazing when you laugh at how crazy your mind is, it goes from I don't like this and really is pulling you down, and you laugh at yourself for getting caught. It goes to, Well, it's only this, it's not a big deal. Let it go. That's the fastest way to overcome hindrance, is to laugh with yourself about how crazy your mind is. Welcome to the human race. Everybody's crazy. And it's fine to be crazy. So laugh with it and have fun with it instead of getting serious and you're going to start getting a lot more compliments on your food when you do that. <laughs> it sounds odd. It sounds too simple. But it's not. I've been in situations where I got angry at somebody years ago. And I'd be walking and jamming my heel in the ground and oh, that no good so-and-so and I had all these nasty thoughts about that and then I'd have a thought about something that they did and they were mistaken with what they were thinking about and I laughed and all of a sudden I'm not angry anymore well it's only this anger well let's let that go I don't want to carry that around with me Laughing works. It really, really works. Keeping your mind uplifted. That's what the Buddha was trying to show us. And it's simple. That's the thing. You have no idea how many people complain to me about being too simple. <laughs> it's got to be more complicated than this. Well, no, actually it doesn't. Think about it. the Buddha. He was teaching a lot of farmers that weren't very intelligent. I mean, they were smart with growing things, but they didn't have a lot of smarts and thinking. And they were simple folks. He came along and he had to teach him something that really worked, and it worked quickly or else they wouldn't take the time to do it. Smiling. Having fun with what you're doing while you do it. 
Doesn't that work? Doesn't that help your mind get uplifted? And then you become much more aware of distractions when they start to happen. I had a man in Perth that he had practiced uh, one-pointed concentration for seven years, and he wrote to me, and he said, I've been practicing this meditation for seven years, and I haven't really noticed any personality change. Can you help me? So I wrote back and said, yeah. Now, he'd been doing mindfulness of breathing, so I told him, on the in-breath, relax. On the out-breath, relax. <coughs> Every time there's a distraction, let it be, relax, and come back. And he would do that for a little while, and then he would forget and get back into that one-pointed concentration. So finally, I got kind of fed up with him, and I say, okay, I'm going to get you to change your meditation. I want you to do loving-kindness meditation. Why do I like to have people do loving-kindness meditation? Because almost everybody has bad habits with the breathing meditation. So I give you a completely different kind of meditation where you have to develop your mindfulness again. And he started complaining about, oh, there's so many hindrances. I just can't do it. I'm going to go back to the breath. And finally, I got fed up with him, and I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to not do any meditation for one week. All I want you to do is smile. And when it's hard to smile, I want you to laugh. And I didn't hear from him for a week. And I thought, well, he went to somebody else. And he wrote back and he said, this has been one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. I started smiling, and I noticed that when I was walking from one place to another, my posture started changing, and I started looking around. And you know, the weirdest thing, people started smiling back at me. They never did that before. And he said, even when it was hard to smile, I smiled anyway, and there's great benefit in that. And people would start coming up and talking to him, strangers. And he went through some real personality changes, and then he said, I don't have to take so many drugs now. And I went, drugs? <laughs> What are you talking about? He said, well, I'm in a mental institute. <laughs> and the doctors are seeing a change, and now I don't get so strung out with these heavy drugs.
eventually, they told him that he was when he went in, he was going to have to stay in the mental institute for the rest of his life. But he went through so many personality changes through his smiling and having a lighter mind that they let him out. And he's out to this day. So how important is smiling? How about have fun? Why are you serious? I told you when I was doing the Vipassana, every time I went in, I'd do it with 50 people, 100 people, and everybody had a frown on their face. <laughs> and I, the heaviness in the room from their concentration was really uncomfortable. I can't walk in to where they're doing Vipassana because it gives me a headache. It causes my mind to get real tight. But when people come and they start practicing with me, at the end of a Vipassana retreat, what do you talk about? how hard it was, how painful it was, how difficult it was. Huh? When I get done with a retreat and people start talking about, I wish I could stay here a couple more days. Let's, let's do this some more. When are you coming back? But the thing that you have to remember is anytime you get serious about anything and you have repeat thoughts, you have an attachment. What is an attachment? The attachment is I am that. Hmm. I don't like that. It is craving. So I teach people how to have that relaxed step and not keep your attention on the thing that is causing the pain. Let it be there by itself. Don't make a big deal out of things. Develop your sense of humor. The more you laugh with things, the easier everything becomes. A lot of people, I know that they, they like uh, pagans and that sort of thing. They like their magic. Well, if they want to see real magic, they should start smiling. You see miracles happen all the time. I see people go from a grumpy face to a smiling face. That's a miracle in itself. You see all kinds of wonderful things when you have an uplifted mind. When you have a heavy mind, you don't even look around. You keep your head down. You don't see the beauty of things. Now, as I said, I have a lot of students that are quite successful with meditation. And it's not because of me, it's because of the Buddha. I'm just a guide. I'm going to keep you on the path. That's all I do. 
The Buddha is going to give you the information and how to use it. And one of the things that happens when you become a Sotapanna is your, your perspective starts to change. And you start looking around and everything is clearer and the colors are brighter and it's much more beautiful. And you start catching yourself when you start having unwholesome things come up. You're still going to get caught by them, but you'll see it more clearly. You let go of it, and you start laughing with yourself about, boy, that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. You start having more fun with little things and appreciating little things. And then it turns into appreciating big things and wishing other people well while you're walking around. It's fun. Have fun doing it, please. Keep that smile going. Now, when I teach people how to smile, and I have to, it's smile in your mind. Smile with your eyes little Buddha smile on your lips. It doesn't have to be a big grin, toothy grin. But smile in your heart. Soften your heart. Don't resist or push. Soften and smile. Drops. So the more you do this, the more you're going to have an uplifted mind, the happier you're going to become in your daily life. And other people are going to start to go, you're different. What are you doing? And learning how to be happy. That's what we want to learn. That's what the Buddha's teaching is about. It's just learning the different levels of happiness so that you don't have so much suffering. When you have a serious mind, you have a mind that is causing you suffering. Smile, laugh. Laugh at how crazy your mind can be, because it can take off and do all kinds of really weird stuff. <laughs> so you laugh with it instead of getting caught up in it, and it, it's easy to let it go when you laugh. One of the expressions that it was a song, I think it was in the 60s, and it said, Mama said there'd be days like this. And every time I say that to myself, it makes me laugh. Because it makes me realize that I'm getting caught up in something that's really not so pleasant, and I'm causing myself a lot of suffering. And I'm doing it to myself. You can't make me suffer. I suffer on my own. Because I take it too personally, and I try to fight with it instead of just let it be and laugh and have fun with it.
Thank you for listening to our Lifetimes of Learning podcast. To listen to our other recordings, go to our website, www.bdcu.org.au and click on Dharma Teachings. Or you can go to our online World Buddhist Radio station from our website by clicking on Buddhist Radio. May you be well and happy. May all beings be well and happy.